Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 600 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia, and our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in the regions. In 2019, the BBC appointed its first ever LGBT correspondent, Ben Hunt. Whenever an LGBT story breaks, he appears on the 6 or 10 o'clock news and across the BBC's global websites. His first year on the job has been an unprecedented one, with the rise of anti-LGBT hatred in Europe, marked by stark developments in Poland and Hungary. In this episode of The Frontline, Ben sits down with us to talk about the relationship between the media and LGBTI issues, why some stories get all the attention to the detriment of others, the rise of anti-trans voices in newspapers and broadcasting, and ways we might get the real diversity of LGBTI stories picked up. Your appointment to the BBC as its first ever LGBT correspondent was in 2019, and congratulations on, on being appointed to that, that post. It's a pretty major appointment, really, um, and stepping your career. It's relatively recent, really, 2019. And in that time, there's been unprecedented upheaval across the world, and particularly for LGBTI communities. So what has it been like for you to cover LGBT issues at this time in the world? So thank you for having me. Yes, my name is Ben Hunt. I'm 29 years old, he, him pronouns. And yes, I was the BBC's first LGBT correspondent and it is incredible to be here. Thank you so much. Um, it has been a roller coaster being the BBC's first LGBT correspondent and telling these stories internationally. Uh, there have been some incredible highs. There have been quite a few lows. Uh, but overall, it's been a fantastic journey. And I've loved being able to uh, tell these stories on an international stage and bring these audiences on the same journey that so many are going through uh, across the world. Um, I would say that it's it has been difficult, yes. Um, diving into some of these areas and exposing the injustice and the things that people are going through from uh, Poland's LGBT free zones to Senegal um, hiding uh, LGBT HIV positive members of, um, of their population. It's, it's very scary to, to speak to people about what they're going through. And a lot of these issues aren't really picked up and covered by international media. So I do feel like it's, it's kind of on me to, to tell these stories and as a result of that, it, it does get quite taxing. Um, but we are at a very weird time for LGBT rights internationally. So to be able to be in a role that does shine a light on some of that injustice and some of the progress that's being made as well, is just a fantastic opportunity. And I, I genuinely feel blessed every single day to be able to do it. And so picking up on that, you know, we do see a lot of media coverage of Poland in particular and, and yes. kind of hungry of what's happening there. But they're not an anomaly in the context of what's happening across Europe. Um, for LGBTI people and communities. Why do you think it is so difficult to get the media to pick up on the more nuanced stories and the issues that are facing LGBTI people? Ooh, I mean, when you find the answer, please let me know. <laughs> please let me know. Um, I think it's difficult. It's like I know when I put a story out, I know the stories that will get attention. and I know the stories that will do well and will click, be clicked on and shared and potentially go viral. And if there's one thing that I found out over my time in, in this role, it's that for me, UK stories travel, US stories travel, anywhere else is a bit of a struggle. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. Like in my role as uh, the BBC's West Africa correspondent, which I did as a secondment for a few months, um, I found that like my engagement across every piece of social media was just dropping because of these African stories. And 
it was really shocking to me because I'd worked for BBC Africa previously. And then obviously I'd become the BBC's LGBT correspondent. So to go back to, to kind of what I was doing before and to tell some of those stories and to see that people weren't interested <laughs> in what are ultimately some of the most horrific and most unjust and just outrageous things are happening to people across a huge space of land. It was wild. It was really, really wild. Um, so I, I think it's maybe because uh, maybe because these issues seem so far, so far away from from people's own lived experience, they find it difficult to resonate with what people are going through. Maybe it's that. Um, maybe it's that the media organisations and the social media companies don't prioritise um, platforming these stories in the same way as uh, as domestic stories. So international stories just don't get as much traffic, and therefore maybe they're not put into the spaces. Or maybe it's just that there genuinely is no interest. Maybe it's just that people just do not care. And if in the time that I've been in the LGBT correspondent role, I have seen some LGBT people that just don't care. They've got their rights, they've got their man, they've got their dog, they've got whatever, and they're good. Like, they're just like, I don't need to pay attention now. Um, so whereas before in the UK, for instance, when Section 28 was around, um, people were united against this one thing and they wanted to kind of beat that and, and drive it into the ground. And then it was achieved and people were like, cool, done. So maybe it's that, maybe that things have got so good for some people that now they just don't pay attention to things outside of their bubble. And there is that idea that things are done in many countries that, you know, we have marriage, for instance, in, in many countries and, and that feeling and I suppose misconception that everything is done and justice is, is out there. But I suppose really what's coming to the fore um, in the news in the UK we see that is not really done because we've seen a sharp rise in anti-trans voices. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think their effect is on trans people and communities? Well, I know the effect because I, I speak to people, I report on these issues, I investigate these things and the effect is severe. Uh, it's, it's really quite scary, to be honest. I mean, I have to be careful because I work for an impartial news organisation and the BBC does platform all sides of a story. And for me, that's one of the reasons I wanted to work for the BBC was because it is important that you give the facts to people and then allow them to make their own decisions about whatever. Um, but with this, I mean, this is people's lives. And I suppose it's when there's so much fake news that is out there and there's so many like alternative facts around trans lives. Um, it's quite scary to be sat in what is ultimately quite a privileged position um, in this role to be able to just look out and see what's going on. And to do that and see that there is such adversity towards um, largely innocent, a largely innocent body of people is it's scary. Um, and especially for young people as well, just before Christmas, I did a story about and um, the effect of the uh, puberty blockers ruling in the UK and what that means to young people. And the amount of complaints that it got from, from people um, to saying that like, we shouldn't be platforming these trans young people to speak about their experiences and we shouldn't be speaking about the puberty blockers ruling and all of these different things. And for me, I became a journalist to expose to expose what people are going through and expose injustice and expose all of these different things. That's literally why I became a journalist. So for me, as LGBT correspondent, I want to get to the heart of like, well, what are people thinking and feeling? Like, what are people going through as a result of this? Um, so yeah, on the ground, I am seeing a lot of pain. I'm seeing a lot of hurt. I'm seeing a lot of fear um, as a result of the toxicity that does exist in the UK media around trans lives. And that's not to take, um, any side on social media or anything like that but just to see the actual fear and the distress that this is causing it's, it's real 
And and we talk about balance. I suppose it's hard to really balance up. And and I'll check from my own experience of the marriage referendum in mm. Ireland in 2015. Um, I'm from Ireland. I was living in Dublin at the time. And it was the media had called for, you know, there was always calls for balance in the media. Yes. There were maybe two or three really extremely uh, right-wing mm. voices uh, as opposed to thousands of, of people who were who you know were wanted yeah. to speak on, on behalf of the rights of, of LGBT or lesbian and gay couples but they'd be given equal time and that would be called balance what do you what do you think about that that kind of dichotomy and the problems therein it's difficult it's difficult I mean like I said I work for an organization that does value balance and that's part of our editorial guidance we we have to have balance within our pieces um, I mean, what I would say is that not every topic needs to be balanced. Um, overall, like our editorial guidelines state that as long as the topic as a whole is balanced across various different outlets and our coverage, then that is enough, that is sufficient. Um, so it's not necessarily that you're, you're going to have a piece about a trans young person living their best life and, and being accepted in school and you need someone on the other side to say, no, trans people don't exist. Like that's not, that isn't necessarily the, the way that the BBC would balance something. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's difficult, it's difficult, but I made a choice as a journalist to work for an organization that does present all of the facts, because I think, especially on an international stage, people do need a place to go to where they can understand the statistics, understand the facts, understand like um, the, the, the bare bones of an issue and then come up with their own, their own conclusions around that. Um, but I suppose like what I, would always hope that I do is I still do reflect like the feeling and heart at the core of a story. Um, and if as a result of any reporting I did, like someone was made to feel kind of duped or or scared as a result of it, like that's then I would have failed in my job. Um, I'm here to expose the injustice. I'm here to expose numbers and details and data and um, people doing wrong and international communities that aren't uplifting what they're supposed to. Um, and yeah, if, if anything was to get in the way, I'd feel awful. Let's, I want to stay with the anti-trans voices for a moment because, you know, they're not just in the UK and yeah. um, it's a spreading phenomenon, really. Um, and I think as... A, on the other side of that coin, the LGBT community have been seen as a very strong and unified and successful um, force for social justice. Mm -hmm. Do you think the rise of those voices within the community itself um, has a, a, a kind of sows division and thereby maybe reduces our strength in, in, as, uh, in numbers as a unified force? If there is one thing that I've genuinely noticed since taking on this role, it is how fractured the so-called one LGBT community is. And I think it's fascinating, especially at times like this in June, where suddenly corporations are trying to um, attract every single member of the LGBT community with one specific campaign, paint something with a rainbow, sprinkle some glitter on it and add some unicorns and it's done. That's it. They're going to be happy with it. And since coming into this role, like you, you have to understand that there are so many different views, so many opinions, so many lives, so many privileges, um, so many lack of privileges. I mean, the intersectionality is real. The idea that you do have multiple um, parts of your identity and the way that they intersect can hold you back. This is 
it's it's it isn't one homogenous group of individuals yes we share several experiences with each other and with the rest of the communities but actually like you can be individual within that and yes that does stretch to um opinions on marriage on especially within gay marriage i know i, I know a number of um cis gay men who did not want um the the marriage uh well they did not want marriage to be successful for for lgbt people um i know a number of people that think that they don't want to adopt they don't believe in surrogacy maybe um, and yeah it also extends to trans lives as well i do know some um lgbt people who are not supportive of trans lives and this is why i think it's so important to dig deeper into these uh into these topics and into these these experiences because the more that you paint the LGBT community as one community, I think the more vocal some of those people will be to speak out against whoever. Um, and that's why you're seeing some of these, these fractures. Uh, but for me, covering all of this, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad to see it on the ground and see what it means to people um, and to those that are, that are really affected by it and disadvantaged by it. Um, but it's also quite worrying as well that like the lengths that people are going to to be heard now, um, especially who are LGBT, um, and where their views may be seen as controversial in the rest of the community. Like you are from a from a looking down perspective, yeah, I think it is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So we talk about you know the divided voices within the community, but of course within the LGBT community, there are a lot of other marginalised voices. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about the intersections there and and those voices that aren't represented from many many intersections in society mm -hmm. how how do we make sure that all the voices in our communities so i'd say the plural communities how are those voices represented and included and i suppose respected as equal voices within our communities I mean, again, when you find out the answers, let me know. This is this will be great to know. But I, I do have a few ideas. I think for me, it's about getting out to um, to things that I can't speak on personally. I will always speak to others on. So I have like a WhatsApp group of people that when I do a story, for instance, or I'm thinking about a story, I kind of go to those people and be like, well, what do you think about this? And they can kind of give me their perspectives from like the non-Ben, the non-cis, black, 29-year-old, gay, male, whatever. They, they can't, um, they aren't me. So they can kind of give their perspective on things. And that's been really important to me because when I did come into this role, I, I genuinely thought I knew a bit of everything. <laughs> like I really did. And it's taken being schooled by so many people within these communities that I'm like, wow, I really need to read up more. I need to educate myself. I need to understand. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's that. I think everyone can really benefit from just speaking to people more and just understanding their own lived experiences. But I think the internet, has enabled us to do that. If I want to find out the experiences of an asexual, agender person, I can literally search the hashtags on Instagram, on Twitter, or on TikTok, and I can find those lived experiences and I can speak to that person. And obviously not to say that everyone's gonna want to speak out personally based on their things, not everyone is an activist, not everyone wants to represent themselves on that stage. But if people are willing to do that, then what a way to learn. Like it's incredible, like the opportunities are out there. Um, you've got blogs, you've got YouTube channels, you've got, um, you've got media, like traditional media, all of these things, there's so much, uh, there's so many resources that are out there to learn more about these experiences that to the point now, like 
I would say that a lot of so-called marginalized communities may not even class themselves as marginalized because as far as they know, they've got their community, they're, they're living their best lives, they've got their audiences, they've got their platforms and they're happy. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that uh, with traditional media, maybe not covering certain voices in the same way, or maybe advertisers not covering it in the same way. Um, I don't think that has like a direct reflection on what people actually think about their own identities now, because representation is out there, <laughs> like, it's happening. Whether you like it or not, people are literally standing up to be counted, so yeah. Okay, so last year you took the top spot in The Guardian and Diva Magazine's Pride Power List. Congratulations. Thank you. And there is indeed power in your position. And with power, as they say, comes <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. Very much. So so. How do you see your responsibility as the LGBT correspondent mm -hmm. for one of the most respected and revered media organizations in the world? Well, um, I take huge responsibility um, for my role and especially like what it can do for the community. And it's really important to me that I do um, represent the communities as a whole on this stage as well, because I'm very aware that um, for some people, I may be the first LGBT person that they see, hear, know of. And that is real. Like I receive messages on a, a daily basis, like DMs on Instagram or wherever else from people who are saying like, oh, I didn't realize that you could be black and gay. Like, oh, I didn't realize that you could be a journalist and be gay. Oh, I didn't realize that you could speak openly about being gay in the news. And it's for me, so being that voice and being like that first is a huge responsibility. And I do take it seriously. I would also say that when I grow up, I genuinely did think I was the only black gay man in existence. I thought it was just me. I used to watch this show called um, Big Brother and there's a guy in it called Derek Lord. I think he was on like one of the early seasons. He was an ultra conservative, fox hunting, like super well-spoken black gay man. Now, when I was growing up, like I said, I didn't think that we existed. So when I saw Derek on TV, I was like, oh, oh my gosh, like there's another one. It's me and Derek, like it's just us. So I would watch the live feeds. I'd watch how Derek walked, how he talked, how he spoke, because that to me was like a black, gay, successful man. If I could be like Derek, I could survive. And I suppose for me, I almost want to be that Derek. This is why I treat my social media in such a positive way. And I don't get into battles on Twitter with people that slander me and whatever else, because I know that when I'm on this stage and when I'm being looked at in this way, it is important to literally represent an entire group of people and to do my best doing so. So hopefully, yeah, I have been that direct for some people and hopefully that can continue. And as long as I am in a role that is public facing, I'll be doing my damnedest to make sure that I'm working hard and hustling and exposing things because I genuinely don't think there are many that could be in this role and do what I can do. In an ideal world, then what do you think the role me the media needs to play for LGBTI people? Ooh, um, when I joined news, I very quickly realized that there was not really anyone that looked like me or sounded like me doing what I wanted to do. And therefore I had to make my own path. I would hope that in me getting this role, other people are realizing that they can do this. I'm not saying I make the job look easy, but because <laughs> it isn't easy, but I would hope that some people have realized if Ben can do this, I could maybe do this as well. I would hope that the media becomes more representative of the people that are out there reading and watching the content that media organizations make. 
Um, I think you've seen as a result of Black Lives Matter, I'm looking at some UK news uh, creators. I'm like, wow, like this is, there's been some real change, some real, real change. So I think it's over the next few years, I'd really hope that, um, yeah, representation does increase amongst more diverse communities. Um, and to be able to see that on the inside would be fantastic. Um, but I think from the outside, that's where you really need to see it because it isn't an us versus them mentality. Like I report on the stories that people tell me. And if people stop telling me things, I have nothing to report. Um, so it really is, it's a humbling experience. People will go through things and think, I need to tell Ben at the BBC about this before anything else. Sometimes before the police, that would literally call me and message me before they go to the police about whatever they've been through. And that is such a humbling thing to know that I've built up that trust. And that's what we need more of. We need people to trust those that are providing the news because these are huge platforms. This is your experiences. This is what you're going through. These stories need to be told. So come to us. And if you don't feel like you can come to us, do it yourself, <laughs> become a journalist. Everyone has the power to right here in your hands. So put your story out there and see what can be done. Well, Ben, uh, you do make it look easy, but that's because you bring such incredible professionalism to your role and such dedication and it is, you know, it's great that you're there and it's great that you're representing and that you have such commitment to telling our stories and every story. So thank you again for joining us and I wish you all the best with your, your career going forward. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Frontline, ILGA Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. Please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next time when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now.